0: Howdy. This is a... Fuck. Welcome to the fail... Uh... No, 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 I got this. I got this. All right. Welcome to the Art of the Fail. This is a podcast hosted by Christian Borgazan, co-founder of Arch, and myself, Chris Buttonham, co-founder of ob.ai. We sit down with startups and entrepreneurs or anyone interesting willing to sit down with us. We hope that we uncover lessons and
1: anecdotes, but if not, we hope you get a laugh. <laughs>
0: Let's just get started with
1: the show. So for this season, what Chris and myself have have done is uh, we've brought on an incredible sponsor and, well, to be honest, the main reason for that is because we're broke and we wanted more money.
0: Yeah, what do you think we got? We, we do this for? Of course, you know, I like hanging out with you, buddy. I like hanging out with you. I like bringing <laughs> on the guests, but we're entrepreneurs. We get with it, right? We got to monetize this bitch. So we brought on a kick-ass sponsor, Stones and Hustle. Stones and Hustle is the ultimate lifestyle brand for entrepreneurs and hustlers of all shapes and sizes. So if, well, first of all, if you haven't checked out the, the video podcast on YouTube, where you been, go there, okay? Go check out the Art of the Fail on YouTube, and then you'll see some amazing threads that we've been wearing all season long we got t-shirts we got we got uh, hats and you can get that and join the movement at stonesandhustle.com stonesandhustle.com get your gear
1: join the
2: movement and keep hustling
1: Alright, welcome back to the Art of the Fail everyone, listeners, viewers, uh, thank you so much for joining us today as always. Uh, Another exciting episode uh, ahead of us today. An awesome guest, uh, someone I've kind of been following along, uh, just sort of like watching what she's been up to lately. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will actually be very familiar with who she is, uh, very active in the startup and uh, in, in technology space in, in general, in Canada, especially uh, in Toronto, um, founding editor of BetaKit, previous managing director at 88 Agency, uh, and now the CEO of Wilfo, which is an estate planning uh, technology company, so I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that a lot later, but Aaron Burry. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Did I say the name correctly, the last name?
3: You nailed it. Rhymes with hurry or furry. Most people (laughs) say Barry, so I really appreciate you getting it on first
1: try. Usually, yeah. Wow, I almost screwed up there because usually before we start – recording i i asked to make sure and i realized i did not ask and, so and knowing christian it, so he was panicking i was actually <laughs> i was, my heart was like <laughs> when i was saying your name my heart was like please don't screw it up but okay I, I got uh okay good that that's good to know um let's get to it let's let's get to the little Q and then we can start having some fun with uh with those failures so first question okay. I, I always like to ask this one first uh what did you have for breakfast this morning
3: Oh my god, I had, I usually have, I'm a creature of habit when it comes to breakfast, so I usually have a whole wheat English muffin with peanut butter, but today we were in transit on the way from Montreal and had packed up everything we own, including our food, so I had a (laughs) granola bar, which is not very glamorous. I I don't think that would be featured in any of those, like, what successful videos (laughs) for 6am
2: articles, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Granola bar is uh, is a OK in my books. Um, Aaron, what motivates you?
3: Ooh, that's a tough question. We're just starting off with the deep philosophical ones. Yeah, I, so I like, do I, like to, <laughs> I like to switch up
1: the order of them sometimes.
3: Yes, I think um, what motivates me is always just challenging myself and challenging myself to learn more. Um, I think my enemy is complacency, and so. Okay. Uh, You know, people always say, what's your ultimate doom? And I always say it's an episode of The Office, not watching an episode of The Office, which is my dream is just to sit around watching that all day but actually <laughs> yeah. living an episode of it and just being bored and complacent and the same thing every day like like a the movie groundhog day so i think for me it's uh what motivates me is always learning and always pushing myself and yep um you know i think we get billed as millennials i'm a later millennial but still one and we get uh, a bad rap for switching careers and i think a lot mm-hmm. of times uh, it's not that people are disloyal or that they, um, you know, that that they're these pesky millennials. I think it's just that, uh, like me, people really want to be challenged, and right. stagnation is really uh, the thing that causes people to move on. So right. I know for me, uh, every time in my career that I found myself feeling like I've mastered a role or I'm not really learning much day to day, that's when I know it's kind of time to do something
1: else. Cool, great answer there. Um, best and or worst piece of advice you've been given. Could be It could be something that's even really recent, so at least it's kind of like top of mind.
3: Yeah, so I would say the best advice that I was given, and this wasn't necessarily by one specific person, but I think in entrepreneurship, there's always this advice to just take risks and to take yep. risks early. And I about a year out of school, I was working at a mid-sized PR agency and was approached to go work at a startup. And I was talking to all of my my high school friends and You know, we didn't grow up with entrepreneurial role models in many cases because I graduated high school in in 2003. So it was pre-Facebook and pre, you know, the sexiness of Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, everyone still wanted to grow up and make six figures. and. So a lot of people that I talked to said, why would you leave a stable job? Why would you mm-hmm. go work at a startup? And what the hell is entrepreneurship? Don't you just want to, you know, have stability? And thankfully I listened to my mom who said, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Right. And that sounds like a really basic piece of advice, but for me at the time it was a, it was a chance to say, yeah, the worst that happens is my startup only lasts 6 months, it runs out of money and I have to come crawling back to my agency job with my tail between my legs, but yep. the best thing that could happen is what actually did happen, which is that, you know, I, I learned a ton and it made me fall in love with entrepreneurship and I've always been really, my best piece of advice was the, you know, take a risk, what's the worst that could happen? Yep. And the worst piece of advice conversely was around the same life event, which was don't take a risk, right. you know, stay and be complacent and uh, and and favor stability over risk at that point in your life. So it's kind of led me to a, a career of hopefully taking risks for for as long as I have a career, although, people are right when they say that it's easier to take risks when you're younger. I mean, at age 22, when that ha- when I was offered that startup job, I didn't have a mortgage or, I mean, I still don't have kids, but, um, you know, there's all these things that tend to tie you down the older you get from financial stuff to family yep. obligations. So, uh, I definitely always give that advice to people who are younger and considering starting a business and, uh, and hopefully I will continue to take risks throughout my career.
1: Love it. Um, who inspires you?
3: Oh, man, that's a good one, because I feel like there are so many different categories of people who inspire you. There are kind of the, you know, the icons, the celebrity entrepreneurs that you look up to. And for me, those are people like Sarah Blakely at Banks who really paved the way for being these entrepreneurial, you know, famous role models. Yep. Um, in the Toronto community or in the tech entrepreneur community, it's people like Jen Rubio, the founder of Away!, suitcases and Michelle Romano, the founder Mm -hmm. of of ClearBank, who I'm lucky to say is, is a friend. Um, and then, in my own life, I would say my inspiration is definitely my mom. She uh, was not an entrepreneur. She spent about thirty years working as a marketing executive at Nortel, but she definitely taught me the value of hard work and right. of building a strong career and of women being a breadwinner in the home and how important that is. And uh, she's really what made me uh, gave me my drive very early on to want to be successful in my career and to build an amazing career regardless of what that was. so, so those are i mentioned all women <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i definitely have a lot of inspirations that are um that are men i would say one person who inspires me is definitely Uh, My husband, not because he's paying me to say that, but because (laughs) (laughs) I really believe there are born entrepreneurs and people who become entrepreneurs, and I am certainly the latter. I'm someone who didn't grow up around entrepreneurs. I didn't have a million businesses when I was going through high school, Um, and my husband is is the former. He is one of those people who has just always been an entrepreneurial thinker. He has a million ideas, and whenever people ask me, you know, what are you going to do next? What will your next company be? I always say... I don't know because I, I'm not the one that's going to have the idea. It'll be right, someone right. like Kevin. The ideas people are the ones that come up with the great ideas. I'm the one that's there to hopefully help execute on it. So I'm definitely inspired by, by him and anyone who is a born entrepreneur and who can just churn out business ideas like they're rattling off the alphabet.
1: Yeah, I love it. That's a side note, not to take a little bit of a pause here, but um, just like my good friend Chris here, fun fact for the audience. Um, Chris was a magician in high school. So if you're interested in that, that again, I think we did um, this last season, <laughs> just kind of Wait, reiterating that magic? Yeah, I, I know. Right? I've always, you know, what's funny is he's, he was actually quite good too. Like I watched the video. They were crappy videos. I mean, but it was back in the day, like low cost production. Um,
0: you know why? Because
1: they the, were good tricks though. I, I had to start beating
0: the women off with a stick and it was just like, I didn't have any extra time to work on entrepreneurship. So that's, yeah. All, yeah. You know you know what that
3: sounds like a likely story because I know in my high school it was always the guys with magic that got all the girls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds
1: counterintuitive, doesn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, and back to it. Uh, what's it like working with your husband? Like has that does well, that well, is that dynamic the same when you guys are like in the office or in meetings versus at home?
3: It's interesting because we're just coming off of about four months living in Montreal with our VP of Engineering, not living with him, but uh, being in the same city where the, the only other person really that we knew is one of our, our team members. Right. And so we've basically just spent 24-7 for four months working together. So my answer today is, man, it is tough to work with your <laughs> other. And live with them, especially when you don't have anyone else around yeah. um, and especially when you have different working styles. So I am a very much like type A, hyper organized, super productive, you know, um, person who reads the what CEOs do before 6 a.m. articles and tries every productivity trend that comes out, whereas Kev is much more creative and right. he's he doesn't have a typical business background. He was in trades prior to this. So, you know, he's not as familiar with like powering through 800 emails as he is with, you know, we're building relationships with people. And so the working styles has been something that's been, hmm. you know, interesting to get used to because I'm so used to working with uh, and hiring people who are very similar to me and, right. and very, you know, type A organized. Um, but I don't think that we could have a business like Willful without someone like Kev who has the creative side, who's really great at the storytelling and the right. the relationship building. So I think it's been interesting to try to get used to each other's working style and to remember that, you know, there are a lot of different paths to uh success in a business and Absolutely. that you don't just yep. want one type of thinker, you actually want multiple, multiple. types of thinkers. Um, but other, other than that, I think it's been really great. I mean, I feel like I've been informally working for Willful since uh, since he came up with the idea a couple of years ago. So we sure. just making it official and joining full time earlier this year uh, wasn't too much of a difference, and I think it it has helped in that I've been able to bring structure into into the company where uh, where it didn't exist before. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're you're kind of always talking about the business. I think this is the yep. advice that we got. You know, when I was at, uh, running kit, I interviewed so many husband <coughs> and wife. Uh, founder teams like the founders of Eventbrite and oh yeah, I mean there are so right. many Michelle yeah. and Andrew at at Clearbank there are countless uh, husband and wife or partner teams uh, in Toronto and beyond and yep. everyone gives you the same advice kind of like when you get married we got married in October and everyone says make sure you take a moment during the day to just take it all in and really appreciate it and everyone gives you the same piece of advice but it's very true because the mm-hmm. day goes by in a flash same with uh, every entrepreneur couple they all say You're going to have this inclination to always talk about the business, make sure that you take time for yourselves. And I think that's kind of the hardest thing to do because you're. I'm a person who's kind of always on and always thinking about work regardless. And so when you live with the person who you're running a business with, it's so easy to just throw ideas back and forth. But it's not just their advice to take time for yourself isn't just for you as a couple. It's also for the team because when you're working for an entrepreneurial couple, um, you can feel left out, right? If they're at the breakfast table and making product decisions or having conversations about things, you you may feel left out. So I think hmm. it's as important for us as a couple to kind of leave work at the office or to at least you know make sure that we're putting a limit on that stuff, not just for us but also for our team members, so they don't feel like there's this club that they'll yeah. never be a part that's of a, where yeah. they'll never get a seat at the table. That's
1: a really interesting point. Something that I have clearly never considered or even thought about before. But yeah, that's that's kind of and cool. Aaron is
0: our second. Yeah. A yep. Female guest with uh who is married
1: to their co founder, right? Caitlin
3: McGregor, yeah, Caitlin
0: McGregor from, oh, from Plum. Yeah, yes. yep.
3: I met them many years ago, uh, way before I ever worked with Kevin. Probably had the same reaction that most people do when they meet Kevin and myself, which is, Wow, I don't think I could ever work with myself. And I was definitely <laughs> someone who said that for years,
1: and sure enough. Now, yeah,
3: yeah, but listen, Plum seems to be killing it, and yep. they, yeah, so does their marriage. So, exactly,
1: well. exactly. Um. How I was like laughing when I was writing this question because I know I'm sure you guys probably talk about it a lot. How often do you guys now talk about death at the dinner table?
3: Oh, my goodness. Well, similar to how I never thought I would be uh, working with my my spouse, I never thought that I would be running an estate planning startup. And it wasn't even something that entered my my mind um, you know, we talk about it all the time. Like it's almost become so commonplace that it's kind of lost its importance to us because we'll just be yep. sitting there talking about death and people who are with us are like, you guys are really depressing. Like you're always talking about death <laughs> and we're like, well, we're just so used to it <laughs> yeah. that yeah. it just kind of rolls off the tongue and we don't even think about it. But, exactly. uh, but yeah, we talk about it all the time and we've now become the death people, right? So right. it's, it's not that I try to bring up death at every occasion, but Inevitably, if someone reads an article about a new, you know, a new style of cremation or about how millennials are approaching death differently or anything related to estate planning. They send it to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, etc. So I constantly have in, an inbox full of death related articles, nice. um, which also makes it more frequent because we're constantly sharing those articles with our team. And right. uh, yeah, we, we have a pretty depressing uh, dinner table <laughs> conversation most evenings.
1: Well, I think, you know, the funny part or, or interesting part about that is like death is one of those topics I like not, Many people talk about it at all until it's like, I don't want to say until it's too late, but almost until it's like too late. And it's, you know, I think what you guys are doing over at Willful is such a good thing for, for really anyone and everyone. And, and it's just like an important part of, you know, we talk about that. Obviously, my commitment and involvement with plans, well, is that like death and planning your will is something that is such a critical component of your, yours and your family's financial. Plan as well, and it's so important for your future. But I feel like people just don't want to have that conversation. So maybe I don't know. Maybe more people after listening to this will talk about death after the show. We'll see about yes, that.
3: It's definitely not a topic that people jump to think about, myself no. included. But one of the benefits I've found of you know running an estate planning startup is you inevitably get to have those conversations with the people important to you because you know, it, it becomes more of a, a, a commonplace discussion. And right. so even yesterday I was stopped in at my parents' place in Prince Edward County on the way home to, to Toronto and we started talking about power of attorneys and what they would what they would want to happen if they were in an accident or something happened because their friend had just gone through an experience. And I don't know if we would have had that open of a conversation about it if we weren't involved with Willful and if we didn't kind of already have an entry point to it. And and to your point, I mean, the whole reason that that Kev had the idea for it was a family member passed away and had never discussed Uh, whether he wanted to be cremated or buried even Mm -hmm. though he had been married for 40 years and so his family was sitting around arguing about exactly those things like well I thought he wanted to be cremated well well I thought he wanted to be buried well what should we bury him in and those are not the decisions that you want to be making when you're already grieving the death of a loved one so even if we can kind of make those make more people have those conversations and to your point about financial planning I mean it's so commonplace for people to think about things like life insurance because life insurance has better branding. I mean, it's also a completely death related product. It only benefits people after you pass away, but it's not a scary product because it's all about life, right? It's not about death. So I think we're really working with people like Planswell to try to reframe estate planning and making a will from this scary unapproachable thing into the same conversation as investing and life insurance and all of the other key elements of a financial plan that no one questions whether you should be doing those things. They just see it as kind of an integral part of their their life.
1: Exactly. Um, Last question. Are you ready to start talking about some failures?
3: Always. Sweet. I have, I just fear there will be too many
2: to
3: get into the podcast <laughs> no, episode. No
1: but. such thing. Um we'll do at the least, extra at least long, not in our world. We'll
0: do the extra long version.
1: Today. Yeah. All right. Let's <laughs> uh yeah, let's get going. Chris, you yeah. wanna take it away?
0: Yeah, definitely. So for for our listeners and watchers who uh don't know you, Aaron, can you just, you know, give us uh, the Cole's notes, um uh, background on on who Aaron is and uh and how you've come to, to be in this position today?
3: For sure. I'll try to do the Coles notes, yeah. but you might have to like umbrella me <laughs> yeah. off of
0: the video. No problem. That's, video that's what I do Kikula. best.
3: Okay, perfect. Um, so yeah, so I, I grew up just west of Toronto and uh, had parents who were both journalism grads. My mom went into cool. marketing at Nortel. And my dad became a small town journalist in Belleville, Ontario. So I always knew that I wanted to go to journalism school uh, and work in marketing when I graduated because I saw my dad had a great career in journalism, but uh, my mom definitely had the uh, the the i don't know bigger career with um really interesting opportunities and this was during nortel's heyday so the equivalent i would imagine of blackberry at its heyday as well and uh anyway so i graduated and went to work at a a mid-sized pr agency in toronto and um kind of had achieved my plan and speaking of plans at plans well uh (laughs) i had my like 15 year plan from when i was 10 years old and then i kind of found myself graduated from university working at this pr agency and thinking Okay, now what? I didn't plan past the get a job after university and work in right. marketing. So uh, about a year in, I was approached by an entrepreneur named Sarah Pravet, who's a serial entrepreneur from London, Ontario. And she was starting a social network for entrepreneurs called Sprouter. And so she uh, asked if I wanted to join to lead all of the marketing, communications, customer support, all of those non-CEO, non-technical functions. Uh, So that was when I had those existential questions with friends and Uh my mom about, should I join? Should I not? It's the recession. Should I keep a paycheck? Uh, Luckily, I decided to go the startup route and to go work at Sprouter. And so I joined in, in late 2008 um as community manager and spent the next few years there uh building our network of social of, of entrepreneurs to about 100,000 hundred thousand people wow. um throwing monthly events called sprout ups which were in toronto some people listeners might remember them they had a, you know guest speakers like caitlin at plum and alan at wattpad and we're about 500 people by the time we were uh, done hosting them uh, and traveled all over the world to places like Brazil and Paris and um, and Austin, Texas, and Boston to to meet entrepreneurs and to kind of grow that global network. So cool. it was an incredible incredible experience. And uh, and I'll stop there to see if I can if I if I need to be more Coles y before I get to the first failure.
0: No, that's that's perfect. I think it's a good segue. Um, we were talking before the show about about Sprouter and how that actually. Didn't uh, didn't end up as an initially anticipated um, in terms of of financial outcome.
3: Yeah. So this was uh, and again, I mean, I was def- I was in my early twenties at this point and was definitely shielded from a lot of the larger um, the larger business plans for Sprouter. But this was in the heyday when Facebook had just come out and it was a hundred million times viable to say and raise money on the idea that I'm going to build a social network. And have a freemium approach, or not worry about the business model now and just worry about amassing a large base of users, and then kind of worry about monetization later. So, uh, luckily, we had some angel investment um, from some Toronto angels, and we were focused on building that audience, and and definitely had plans for monetization. We were working on a a new version of the platform um, that had some some monetization built in, but just, you know, ended up kind of running out of runway before we were able to implement those things. And uh, so, yeah, so we ended up having to put a message out to the community saying that we were shutting down. And I remember, uh, you know, obviously it was a hard day for me because I'd worked on this really tight knit team of of a few people for a few years. We were so devoted to the company. We lived and breathed Sprouter at that point. Um, But it was an even harder day for Sarah, because obviously, when you're the entrepreneur, and this is your blood, sweat and tears, and you also are accountable to those investors who believed in you. uh, I just can't imagine what she was feeling that day. But she was really poised and professional about it. And a really amazing thing happened. You know, I, I have so many failures to talk about. But luckily, I also have some lessons on what came out of those and so mm-hmm. we sent an email out to the you know 100 members of this social network saying you know spreader was shutting down and uh we thanked everyone for for you know their loyalty to the platform and and an interesting thing happened which was that we had hundreds of emails back uh to that message saying everything from you've built this amazing community. Can I buy it from you to keep it going? To many Hmm. people saying, why didn't you just come to us and ask us, you know, charge a monthly fee or tell us that this is going on so that we could have helped to keep it alive. Uh, And it was really this interesting example of, you know, before you actually pull the plug on something, seeing if you can leverage the community that you've built, either to keep it going or to crowdsource it or, um, or figure out a way to keep it going. And that community support, I think, was really surprising to us, not because we didn't know we had a great community, but because it, they were so vocal about how they felt about the brand. And right. it was only until we had said, hey, we're pulling the plug, that we really understood the impact that we had had. So that was really interesting. And it ended up kind of being an all's well, the ends well story, because um, at the time we had a question and answer feature on the site. And one of our experts was Noah Godfrey, who uh, is a serial entrepreneur. He recently sold uh, Checkout 51, the couponing app. And uh, his dad is is Paul Godfrey, who's the head of Post Media. Um, And so he had mentioned to his dad just, you know, at the cottage one day that, oh, this site that I'm involved with is shutting down. And, um, you know, while I wasn't in the room for any of those conversations, the end result was that, you know, Paul saw the property that we had and the potential to tie into the financial post entrepreneur section and all of the efforts that they were making to reach a different demographic and uh, And they ended up bringing us into to Post media. I'm sure the acquisition price cool. was not uh, <laughs> millions and millions, but it was a good ending in that we were right. able to keep the spreader brand going. We were able to all go land and have jobs there and build out our team and have some more resources there. So it was a really roller coaster few months, having to kind of announce that it was shutting down. and seeing the outpouring of support and trying to think mentally about what we were going to do next as we moved on. And then, oh, just kidding, you actually get to come and work <laughs> for PostMedia and still work for Starter yeah. And uh, yeah, that brought us to uh, into the fold at PostMedia.
0: So uh, I, th- before we move on to, to uh, post-media and the, I think, really interesting story with you guys starting up BetaKit, which for their American listeners is like the tech crunch of Canada, um, I wanted to ask, watching Sarah go through that from an entrepreneurial standpoint, mm-hmm. what did that, if, in, in what way did that prepare you for becoming an entrepreneur yourself?
3: Well, it's really interesting because I remember when I joined, again, I I wasn't exposed to a lot of entrepreneurs when I was growing up, and uh, working for Sarah was the first time I was really around an entrepreneur all the time. It sounds like I was at the zoo. Like That was the first time I was around <laughs> in the wild. Um, and I remember the hardest part for me as an employee of a startup was turning off because Sarah was working all the time. She's the type of person, just innately, but also because she's she's always run her own businesses, she's the type of person who's just on 24-7. She's sending emails at 1 in the morning, not because she expects you to do something, but that just because that's when her, her brain is on. And right. uh, I remember finding it really difficult to get up, at, even if it was 6 p.m., and to go and do my own thing because I just felt like I needed to care as much as she did. And it really took me a year or two to realize that you know, I shouldn't have cared as much as she did, because inevitably, it's her business, she owns the majority of the equity. Uh, She has insight into a lot of the moving pieces of the business that I I don't necessarily. And as long as I was working my butt off, and I cared about the brand, which I did, uh, I was doing everything that I could. So I think that taught me a lot about, you know, how to set boundaries for your team members and Mm -hmm. what to expect from team members when they work for you. Not that she expected too much of me or anything like that. But Um, you know, there is a line between the entrepreneur who has the majority of the equity and probably should carry more of the stress as a result and the team members who are working from you and who and who she did a good job of this, who are shielded in many cases from a lot of those behind the scenes worries that entrepreneurs have to deal with. And so I'm grateful to her for shielding me from those. But now that I'm on the other side and i've gone through starting them myself i know i know how difficult it must have been for her because she was a solo founder and she couldn't necessarily share those struggles with us it must have been really difficult for her to deal with that on her own and obviously as someone with a co-founder i mean kevin i definitely celebrate the successes um too often with poutine over the last four months
2: (laughs) yeah i could imagine
3: we also have someone to talk to when when things aren't going well. And that was one of the biggest things that Kev struggled with when starting willful was just feeling alone and feeling like he he didn't have anyone to talk to. so right. um, so yeah, so that was one of the big lessons that I learned about uh, about Sarah and what it taught me and and it definitely prepared me for the roller coaster of emotions. I mean, I saw what she went through in terms of um, you know, building things and, Uh, And how difficult it was and how much she worked and how she was always on and she sacrificed her social life and a lot of things to make it successful. And so she definitely showed me, you know, if you want to go this path, it's not for the faint of heart. And Mm -hmm. it seems very glamorous, but behind the scenes, it's a lot of hard work and sacrifice.
1: Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a topic that you and I have talked about quite a bit uh, over the past couple of years. It's something that's come up a ton of times uh, on the show It's just like how emotionally draining it can be um as a founder but especially as as a solo founder which i'm not i've never been a solo founder so i can only imagine what she was going through um you know there's some days where i just feel like pulling my hair out and like so many other emotions that are going on too but it's it's tough it's just the stark reality of it you've got your high highs and then your low lows and you try to find that medium in between obviously more on the higher side of course but it's uh it's tough.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting anecdote that you pulled out of that, um, in terms of um, understanding the line between, you know, founder and employee. Mm-hmm. Because I think as a, a first-time founder, uh, who maybe is like Kevin, that born and bred entrepreneur who is just going to jump you know, headfirst into those opportunities, they might be confused. I know like I'm a first time uh, first time tech founder and uh, haven't really had a proper job ever. So I think early on um, in my entrepreneurial endeavors, I had those expectations of people that were working with me. And uh, you learn the hard way that uh, that it's your baby and you sort of you have to act like that. So that's a really interesting anecdote that I don't think. has been has been said too often um so also Merit, let's uh let's take it uh forward and talk about you um you guys starting up beta kit within post media and then the the eventual uh um uh what would you say um highlight of of that story
3: yes yeah, so it all culminates in in what i would say is my my second major failure. Um, so when we were brought into Post Media, we uh, we were still running Sprouter, so this social okay. network for entrepreneurs, but Sarah actually had a market research background working for a company called Infotech Research Group, which is a big tech research company based in Toronto. And I obviously had a journalism degree and had done some some writing when I was at Sprouter for, for publications like the Globe and Mail. And it was at the time where for any OGs in the in the tech world who remember when AOL purchased TechCrunch, there was kind of this period during that time where uh, there wasn't publications like The Verge and there were very few um, publications reporting well on technology and a lot of them were turning very gossipy so obviously Gawker was still around at that point and TechCrunch reported you know there was all this drama with Michael Arrington and and AOL and Nap Rooms at AOL and all of this stuff that was going down and Sarah said you know as a founder I just want someone to report the news. I don't need right. all of the gossip and the drama and all of that. I just want journalistic tech news. And so that was really the origin of where the idea for BetaKit came from. And at its inception, it was actually a global publication when it launched. So it wasn't just focused on Canada. And the idea was that it was just straight tech reporting and that it wouldn't be um, motive, uh, monetized through ad dollars, which was why a lot of those those uh, publications had to report on the drama and the, the gossip, because that's what got page views. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would monetize it instead through uh, technology research reports. So the idea that, you know, if you're the head of an agency or at a big company, you could subscribe to our reports, much like you would reports from uh, eMarketer on marketing and pay a subscription fee to get reports on things like mobile payments and other tech trends. Uh, So we launched it in February of 2012, I believe, and uh, hired a full-time employee, Daryl Etherington, who's now at TechCrunch and had done stints at apple and shopify he's an amazing journalist and a great person and uh so we had this little editorial team and i was managing the uh the content on the site and also managing and writing all of the market research reports and uh, i was really proud of what we were able to accomplish in in a short time because we were global we were competing with people like TechCrunch, and so we had to build relationships with venture capital firms and PR agencies and startups all over the world. Right. And uh, and we made it to, so there's a leaderboard of technology publications called Tech Meme uh, that a lot of listeners probably follow. And, and within, I think, six months of us launching, we made it to number 32 on that list of global technology publications. So wow. that was kind of my, my number one proof that we were doing well, and the number two proof point that we were doing well, was that TechCrunch poached Daryl <laughs> uh, to go work there, and I didn't blame him. They hired him to work on Apple, and he was very passionate about Apple, so I was really yeah. happy for him. But to me, it was a huge signal that wow, TechCrunch, this massive publication in the U.S., came to Toronto to poach a writer because we right. were doing such great things at BetaKit. Um, so, anyways, BetaKit was all great, and then. Uh, There were, you know, working within post media was definitely a challenge, number one, because uh, at this point they had an office up at Don Mills and the 401 uh, and it was super far and we were like, none of Mm -hmm. our team wanted to go there. So we actually had a separate office downtown, which was nice, but it meant that we didn't really have a lot of um, exposure to the the post media team. And so getting things done was really difficult in terms of content sharing or getting access to their sales team to help us with the, the research reports. Um, and I think Sarah also, like many entrepreneurs, when the acquisition happened when we then had she then had a boss for the first time in a long time, there was obviously challenges in you know having to sit in a boardroom and look at spreadsheets instead of yep. being creative and running her business and so Sarah actually ended up uh, leaving the company early in twenty thirteen and I kind of saw the writing on the wall at that point, uh knowing that post media as a company was losing. Infinite amounts of money, and knowing that, you know, while we did have monetization models in place for both sides of the business, they were still very nascent and mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. I kind of saw the writing on the wall that this was probably going to be um, probably not going to be a long-term thing. So. Uh, it actually came sooner than I thought because we all worked remotely and weren't in the post media office. We got an invitation for a conference call uh, one day, and our entire team was unceremoniously laid off on a wow. conference call. Oh my god! So that was exactly as awkward as you would expect, and uh, and what I was <laughs> yeah no kidding. To be, you know this this second failure in my career because the publication was something I was so passionate about, and it was by all external measures, really successful in gaining all of this traction, but we, I, I found myself kind of out of a job, and, um, you know, that was really tough, not only because uh, I had to go find something else, but also because, you know, BetaKit was essentially just kind of put into limbo, and all of this great reporting that we had done was mm-hmm. just um, left to, to sit.
0: How did you then parlay that into 88?
3: Yeah, so when, it's interesting, I, I'm really, really proud of what Douglas and the team at BetaKit have done uh, with the property. So what ended up happening was Ian Hardy, who's the founder of Mobile Syrup, which is a mobile-focused publication right. in Canada, yep. he approached the Post Media team and said, can I buy the assets of BetaKit from you? And at that time, he, he did ask me if I wanted my job back, which was really nice of him. Um, and at, But at that point, I think I was ready to kind of refocus and right. figure out what I wanted to do. I have a ton of respect for technology journalists, but it is you know, if entrepreneurship isn't always on job, technology journalism is just you know, it's like a hamster wheel. You're only as good as your last story. You mm-hmm. you can't truly ever take time off because doesn't, you know, no one cares about uh, your Saturday afternoon when they announce an acquisition and uh, so I just kind of wanted to break from that pace of, of journalism. And again, journalism was was something I always loved and wanted to try, but it wasn't my true passion. Um, so yeah, so Ian took the publication and he decided to refocus it on just Canada to give it that competitive edge because there weren't a lot of publications in Canada uh, and eventually it ended up being sold to to Douglas Siltis, who's the, the editor in chief today. And yep. they have made it Canada's top startup publication. They have a podcast that I'm a co-host on, and uh, I'm still involved with the team and contribute content, but it's they've done such a great job with it. And I'm glad, you know, my hypothesis was that narrowing it to Canada only would hinder the publication, when in fact, I think it's actually helped it because it's given it a, a clear focus and a yep. clear differentiator from the tech crunches of the world and uh, and they've done a really stellar job with that. So, um, so the 88 thing, basically what happened is I had some severance and so I just decided I was gonna be unemployed for a couple of months and figure it out because I was so lost. Like, I don't know, yeah. if, you know, again, when you're the kind of entrepreneur who has ideas all the time, You're just going to go start your next thing, but I wasn't one of those people, so I felt really lost. I knew that I loved building businesses, I knew that I loved the marketing and tech side of it, but I had no clue what I wanted to do next. And so I did some some interviews at a variety of companies, and um, you know took some time off. and And one of the people that I met with was uh, the founder of 88, who is also the founder of a company called BuzzBuzz Home. So basically, the story is that. Uh, There's a real estate startup called BuzzBuzz Home that does Mm -hmm. pre-construction listings uh, all over North America, and they were using social media. They launched in maybe 2009, 2010. They were using social media like most entrepreneurs do because it was affordable, Uh, but the real estate industry was a little bit further behind. So all of their clients who were real estate agents and real estate builders were completely behind the eight ball on social and so said to, to Matt and the team, can you guys just run my social media accounts for me? Uh, which led to, you know, three or four people devoted full-time to basically what essentially was a social media agency within this software company. And so Matt approached me and said, hey, we're just starting to think about giving this thing a name and making it a thing. Uh, would you be interested in coming and running it? And I said, well, I have no experience running an agency. I worked at one for, for a year, but I don't think that makes me qualified to to run one. But... I know that I'm resourceful, and I, I know the subject matter expertise, and, and I'd love to give it a shot. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think what it what what I learned after Sprouter and really joining on day one and growing it to um, 100,000 people and beta kit, launching it from day one and growing it to 100,000 page views a month. Was that i love taking something that not one person in this entire planet had heard of and trying to make it a thing right uh, and building a team along the way so to be honest someone could have approached me and said you know we are selling guitars online and we need you to grow it and as long as it had those same qualities of being able to grow a team and build a culture and uh, build a brand from nothing it probably would have appealed to me um so yeah so that's how 88 came about i joined in uh, july of 2013 and Uh, I had a couple conditions, you know, I want to be able to refocus it to focus on uh, not real estate, but on consumer tech and and on the startup space, because it's so underserved by a lot of the larger agencies in Canada. Uh, And then I also wanted to expand the service offering. So while we started as a social media agency, we eventually became a graphic design and public relations shop of about 14 people working with companies like lyft and rover.com and fedora and paypal and a whole host of uh, tech startups over the years and and yeah i'm really proud of the, the five and a half years i spent there
0: so uh just to take a step back for a second um i think that it's 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 often really interesting when you hear um, cause you hear so often, especially with us, us pesky millennials that, you know, we <laughs> di- we don't know what we want to do. Um, and, and you said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering if in hindsight and in retrospect, you can share with the listeners, you know, what was it that made, sh- made sure in your mind that you were going to be all right. And, and what got you to that next step? Was it just shit luck? you know was it you know putting yourself out there i'd love to hear like what you think of that cuz everyone tells tells us that it's yeah, like, oh yeah. we don't know what we want to do
3: yeah i mean i think i think that's a dirty little secret that you learn as you get deeper into your career is that nobody has it figured out and yeah. everyone's <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell they want to do and everyone's having an existential crisis and if they're not right now they probably will be in 6 months but yeah. um, i think a lot of the reason that i was confident in taking that position was just time and experience you know everybody walks into i'm sure we all remember whether you had a formal job or not everyone's had a part-time job or Mm -hmm. whatever where you walk in and you're convinced that you're going to fail like i remember walking into my first my first day at the pr agency getting out of university and even though I, i knew i was a smart person and even though i had you know done well in school and all of those things i was just convinced that i would screw it up somehow right like that i would get fired and that my parents would be mad at me and i'd have to like live off of cup of noodles for the next year. Um, And then you just kind of realize that, oh, no, I I can figure it out. I'm I'm a resourceful person. And yeah, I don't know the answers to everything, but I can figure it out or I can ask questions. And and so by my second job, when I joined Sprouter, I felt the exact same way. I felt like, oh, my God, I have no idea what a community manager does. I am absolutely going to screw this up. I'm going to get fired in three months. Why the hell is Sarah hiring me? And then it turned out well, and I just managed (laughs) to figure it out. And um, you know, I surprise I, I yourself. I did a, yeah, I think I did a pretty good job. So I think uh, same with beta kit, you know, how the hell am I going to launch a publication and find right. all these writers? And um, so I think to anyone who who walks into a job and has a bit of confidence, it only comes from the the past experiences that taught you that yeah, you might not know the answer to everything, but you're probably going to be able to figure it out. And I think it was that confidence in myself that I could handle whatever someone threw at me that made me feel like it was going to be okay. Um, And I also think it's also a bit of just projection of confidence, right? Like all of us feel like a garbage fire on the inside most days where we're trying to navigate something. But, you know, I've always thought a lot about the perception of success. When we were at Sprouter, uh, a, bit, a lot of my job was getting coverage in publications and building the the public-facing brand, and so we always had this veneer of success because we were in the Wall Street Journal and the you know the front page of the Toronto Star's business section, and we had these 500 people events, and we were interviewing people like Seth Godin in our blog, uh-huh. and yet behind the scenes, as it became evident, we didn't necessarily have the numbers or the traction to match that, and it taught me a lot about you know with entrepreneurship what people think about your business and about your attraction is all that matters because what's actually happening behind the scenes it's your job to make that catch up to the perception but if Absolutely. you're super successful and no one thinks no one knows about you or thinks that you're a success at all that's not good because then maybe you can't hire anyone because you have no employer brand or no one's ever heard of you and conversely you can't just have a veneer of success and perception uh without any of the substance to back it up um, so that definitely taught me a lot about that. Uh, the second part of your question was the first part was why did you have the confidence to take it? Remind me of the second part of the question.
0: Um, well maybe a, just a better follow-up to that. Where do you think that that confidence comes from? Do you think that that's innate in you or do you think that that's learned?
3: I think a little bit of both, Probably right? Sure. Like I've, I've always been a pretty confident person in my abilities, um, and Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think everyone has um, a bit of imposter syndrome and always will. But um, if you have a little bit of innate confidence, then it definitely helps. The second part of your question I remember now was what allowed me to find that opportunity at 88? And because I did not remember (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to to touch on that because it's something that is really uh, I'm really passionate about, which is personal brand and the power of a network. Yep. Um, when I, when I joined Sprouter, I didn't have a good network at all because again, I just went into work at a PR agency, went home, like didn't really focus on personal brand or any sort of network expansion. Uh, but when I joined Sprouter, you know, I was the marketing budget, so I had to be out every night, shaking people's hands, going to events, writing for publications, building social media, uh, social media presence. And so, and. You know, a byproduct of that was this accidental personal brand that I built for myself, focused around social media and marketing and entrepreneurship. Um, And so, when the announcement that Spreader was shutting down came out, I had all these people reach out saying, "Hey, do you want to meet up and talk about potential job opportunities?" And it really taught me, "Oh, I have this network there, Mm -hmm. and when shit hits the fan, I'm going to be able to tap into that. And uh, I should probably keep fostering this and building it." Uh, So, again, when I had, um, when that conference call happened where I found myself out of a job again, uh, I think I was that part of that not built in confidence, but that manufactured confidence was my network. I had confidence in my network that I had built this, these really strong relationships over time that would stand me in good stead. And that when and if I put the word out that I was looking to do something new, I knew that I'd be able to fall back on that network. And again, the connection with the founder of, of, of 88 was from my network. I'd met them at a sprout up event years before. And, cool. um, and now when people ask me, you know, what's your advice for new grads? I always say, invest in building your network. I don't care if that's through personal branding and public speaking and things like that, or if it's just by, You know, become getting involved with volunteering or joining a professional organization, but you will never lose out by expanding your network and and your network isn't there for when things are going really well. Mm -hmm. No one needs to tap into a network when everything's gangbusters and nothing's going wrong it's for the moments when you find yourself laid off or out of a job or going through a career lull where you need to tap into it. And you can't just build it in, a, in an emergency. It has to kind of be there. It's almost like job insurance, right? To, yep. to have a great network. And so I would say that's the number one thing that I would attribute, uh, any of those kind of subsequent opportunities to.
0: And, and so a little bit of anecdotal feedback there. Um, I met Aaron for all of five minutes, uh, uh, behind, uh, the stage of haste and hustle where we ch- talked about chatbots together and I certainly have not forgotten about you just being connected on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you can tell that that's definitely at the forefront of your priorities. And it's, it, I mean, one of the reasons like, Oh yeah, we should get Aaron on the show, you know, cause, yeah, yeah. um, uh, you're good at it. Let's just say that.
3: <laughs> well, thank you. And haste and hustle was one of my favorite events and I'll never forget the image of the keynote speaker, Gary Vee, at that event being mobbed like he was a member of the Beatles. <laughs>
0: He's like, let's take a selfie 22. and then boom. Yeah.
3: I know. It was insane. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and that's one of the, you know, it's funny. I always say it sounds so egotistical and I don't mean it this way, but I always say I know how Oprah or a celebrity must feel because when you are hosting events like Sprout Ups that have 500 attendees, you inevitably – You know, a lot of people know you, but you haven't necessarily had a chance to meet all of them. So that's definitely been something interesting over my career. Someone will say, oh, I met you eight years ago at a spread up. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I don't remember your name. I was on stage hosting and running around like a chicken with my head cut off. But uh, it is nice to hear, especially years later when most people have forgotten. You think most people have forgotten about a brand that you worked so hard to build. It's always nice when people are like, oh, I remember I went to your events back in 2009. And uh, it always means something.
0: Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to just hop forward to uh, your departure from 88 and um, you joining Willful. And um, that's that's not necessarily about failure, but I am really curious to hear um, what was the thought process between you and Kevin on because Kevin founded the company. And I'm I'm sure that was somewhat mutual, given that you're married. uh, But. You know, what was the thought process of you join, uh, leaving 88 and joining Willful as CEO? It's
2: mm-hmm.
0: a good question.
3: Yeah. So, well, since this is a podcast about failure, I, I would be remiss to not mention that Willful is truly rooted in failure because <laughs> uh, the idea for Willful, again, came about when a family member of Kev's passed away. Right. Uh, he did have a will, but had never discussed all of those other things. So the initial version of Willful was actually called Final Blueprint, and it was, this uh, this site that would store all of your wishes outside of a will. So things okay. like messages to loved ones, what you wanted to happen to your digital footprint, uh, all of those types of things. And everyone of talked to, mostly our friends and family, lesson number one, don't just talk to friends and family, but <laughs> most of them said, oh, this is such an amazing idea, of course I would use this. And uh, when it launched, I think, to this day, the only customers, I might be exaggerating, and Kev's in the other room, so he's probably going to yell if he yeah. to say <laughs> He's like, but, he's like listening me, in right now, like, yeah, say it like, right. Yeah, me on, yeah. on the Art of the Fail podcast. But uh, <laughs> the only customers are like me and, and Kev's mom and maybe a couple <laughs> other friends. <laughs> but it kind of, and the idea was so great, but it was one of those things where uh, death is such an uncomfortable subject. So yep. when you actually put out a product that is a vitamin, it's a nice to have, and it's not a painkiller, a must have. Uh, it just kind of sat there, and but it did, obviously, there was something good that came out of it, which was every conversation that Kev would have with people about Final Blueprint, they would say, oh, it's like an online will. I need a will. Right. And so he took that learning and said, okay, if I built a vitamin, I need to pivot to be a painkiller, and mm-hmm. eventually, I can add those things back in. So once you have a will on willful, the plan is eventually you'll be able to store all that peripheral information, but uh, right. for now, forget the ancillary stuff. Let's just focus on a will because there are so many people that need that. So, so it is very much rooted in failure. It's and a good I lesson. That, I like that. Yeah, that Willful actually really did start, and it also is a good lesson that you know if you're a founder and you start a business and it's not resonating it's not always that you just have to scrap the entire thing. It's right. looking for the nuggets of learning and seeing if you can take one thing from it, just like, you know, the founders of Slack built a video game that didn't yeah, succeed, yeah. but their internal communications tool is now a billion dollar company. So don't just trash it. Look for the nuggets of wisdom that might help you to perform an elegant pivot, uh, to use some, some tech jargon. <laughs> uh, but the, the the thought process behind joining was, I mean, I really didn't have a choice. I'm going to be honest because I left 88, I left 88 for different reasons. Yes, of course, I wanted to be able to help out with Willful more, but I would have done that in any capacity. Um, It was really a byproduct of what I spoke about at the beginning, about not feeling challenged. And uh, we went on our honeymoon over the holidays for three weeks, and I said to the team, you know, email me if there's anything, I'll be online, and no one messaged me. And it Hmm. was one of those things where Hmm. I realized I I had become a byproduct of uh, making myself unnecessary, and I wasn't really... Um, I wasn't learning anything and I also wasn't integral to the day-to-day operations anymore and, mm-hmm. and had built this really great team that kind of ran itself. So that was the motivation to move on. It was it was a really just a byproduct of feeling like I wasn't challenged and feeling like it was time to move on and the team was fine. Um, and then I had the same feeling as when I got laid off from beta kit. I had no clue what I wanted to do next because... Right um again i didn't have a stellar business idea i wasn't one of those ideas people but i knew that i couldn't go work for a fortune 500 company and the reason i decided on willful is because i realized that what i loved was being an operator i loved being you know in that ceo role touching every part of the business Mm -hmm. owning kind of the direction and the vision and the team and if I went and joined another company as CEO, Kev would have killed me. Like he would definitely have <laughs> murdered me because he was sitting there lamenting the fact that he was this solo founder yeah. and he didn't have enough help. Um, so it's kind of a, an inevitability. And but also, I I had become much more passionate about the space. I mean, when Kev told me he wanted to start. An estate planning company, I was like, could you pick a less sexy topic? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's got to be something out there that you're interested in that doesn't have to do with death. But over the years, as I started to learn how big of a problem this is and how no, not many other technology companies are solving it and how how much opportunity there was, not just for online wills, but all these ancillary products in and around the, yep. that space, uh, I got really excited about it. And so uh, we, I decided I was going to join full-time sometime in, in 2019. But then when we got, and my plan was to like relax for the summer, drink mimosas <laughs> at 10 a.m. and like watch daytime television. And then we got accepted to Founder Fuel, And it was um, three weeks later, we had to be in Montreal. So yep. it was one of those Quick like, moving. okay, You know, the best laid plans never come to fruition. And and so I I dove in because, again, going back to the challenge, I knew I would learn a ton going through a startup accelerator and meeting people in Montreal. And and obviously, it's proved to be true. And it was such a great decision to join. And now I can't imagine a time when I wasn't a part of Willful. Um, but, But yeah, it's interesting. Kev definitely bugged me for the first year and a half of his existence to join. And it just wasn't the right time. And I think timing, you probably talk to so many entrepreneurs who talk about Timing being the most important thing, whether it's with their product, whether it's with, you know, them starting up their thing or or joining a company. But for me, it was definitely timing. It it was the right time earlier this year, and it just never really was before.
0: Awesome. Um, I'm going to let Christian wrap it up. Uh, But before I do it, we just got a text message from Kevin, and he said that time that you tried cooking.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that didn't go well. well. When I was you, you asked me for a list of my failures, and he was sitting over my shoulder when I was writing them, and he's like, "Don't forget to tell them that you use your oven for storage." What and that... What did you
1: What did you cook?
3: Oh, there was no specific thing. It's just okay. an amalgamation over the last eleven years of <laughs> of me trying to cook it all, and finally just giving up. You know, it's one of those. Randy gotcha. Zuckerberg always. She has this like rule of five friends, family, yeah, you know, hobbies fitness, and I decided a long time ago that cooking was not going to be one of my five. Eliminated.
0: Self-awareness.
3: And actually, it's funny because I followed very much in my mom's footsteps. My mom was excellent at putting fish sticks and French fries into the (laughs) oven, and uh, that's about it. She was this high-powered marketing executive. She was always traveling for business, and one time she asked me, you know, Aaron, what's, what's my favorite thing that I make for you? And I said, money. <laughs> <laughs> so I
2: would imagine nice. Kev would
3: say the same. Yep. The favorite thing that I make for him is money.
1: I like that. I like that. I a love lot. that too. That's great. Um, yeah, I guess I'll wrap it up. I've been doing these a lot lately now, which is kind of weird because usually Chris is the one to wrap up the show. Um, so we'd like to leave on one question. Who would you like to see? Um, Could be... A person that you know personally could be someone that maybe you follow online or is an inspiration to you could be someone who is dead uh since we were speaking about death who would be one person that you would like to see come on the show and have a conversation with us just like we did today with yourself
3: that's a good one because i feel like if it's anybody ever anybody uh, ever you know, I'd probably have to say someone like a Sarah Blakely at Banks, like one of those hugely successful entrepreneurs who had to face a ton of failure along the way in their career. Um, and if I had to say someone in the the Toronto community, I don't know. I mean, I really respect founders like Mike Katchen at Well Simple mm-hmm. and Alan at Wattpad, who yep. are kind of building the next Shopify. So I'd probably have to say someone like Alan or or Mike Katchen at Well Simple.
1: Cool.
0: Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much for sharing your story today. We had a blast. Um, I hope you did too. And I think that the the listeners are really going to resonate with this one.
3: Well, thank you both. And I also have to say, speaking of imposter syndrome, your list of guests for this season is epic. And I'm honored thank that you. I'm even included. among oh, of People like Heaton Shaw and Guy Kawasaki, who I've been following for the past decade. So thank you for thinking I was worthy to come on uh, amongst names like very that. Worthy. And I think very worthy, very It's also a really, really important conversation about failure. And it's, it's really great that you guys are shining, shining a light on it, and hearing all of our epic fails.
1: Thank we you. Appreciate, appreciate that. Well, that. we are the kings of failure, <laughs> so
0: we uh, every day can't imagine two other people to to bring it better to bring it to uh, to the
1: masses.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron.